Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology consulting and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Welcome to another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. This is your co-host, Zena Island, and today's topic is From Startup to Exit, Lessons to Take into the Next Adventure. Today, we have Jewel Burke-Solomon, who is an advocate for representation and access in the technology industry. As a co-founder of ParkPick, a startup designed to streamline the purchase of maintenance and repair parts using computer vision, Jewel and her team built groundbreaking technology poised to change the way people everywhere locate products. ParkPick raised over $2 million in seed funding and integrated its software into mobile apps, websites of large parts, distributors, and retailers. ParkPick was acquired by Amazon in the late 2016, which I was proudly clapping and cheering for Jewel behind the scenes. I know you didn't know that. (laughs) Jewel is a proud board member at Goody Nation and the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project and spends much of her free time mentoring startup founders and angel investors. Jewel has been featured in notable uh, publications such as Forbes, Wired, TechCrunch, Essence, Glamour, and Business Insider prior to founding ParkPick. Jewel served in management, enterprise sales, and strategic diversity roles at McMaster Car Industry Industrial Supply and Google Inc. Jewel is a native of Nashville, Tennessee, and a graduate of Howard University. She is a member of the 2019 class of Henry Crown Fellows within the Aspen Global Leadership Network at the Aspen Institute. She currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband. And I cannot pronounce his last name. Can you pronounce it for me, Jewel? My husband's name yes. is Zacharias. Zacharias, okay, yeah. Zacharias. <laughs> Thank you, Jewel. What a great bio. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are excited to have you on the show and for what our listeners will learn from your journey. So let's start, let's, let's go back, which is not too far back for you because you're so young. <laughs> um, so you majored in marketing at Howard University. I'm sure a lot of people out here are excited to hear that about your, you graduated from HU. Yes, uh, go Bison. Uh, go Bison. I'm based here in Washington, D.C., as the rest of us are. So um, I'm sure a lot of people will be excited to hear from you on this show. Um, you interned at Google while in college and eventually took a job at Google in enterprise sales. 
I heard that you were very active on campus at Howard and actually spent some time convincing the university to move over to Google Apps. How did your natural problem solving and advocacy skills help you on your journey as an entrepreneur? I, I would say they helped me a ton. And actually my experience at Howard and at Google, um, trying to convince Howard to move over to Google tools and trying to foster a relationship between Google and Howard was a very like formative experience as it related to um, me one day becoming an entrepreneur. So I look back at that fondly and, and am grateful that I had the opportunity to, to do that. So both of your parents were entrepreneurs. How did that influence your expectation of you becoming an entrepreneur? Um, I think that because I grew up watching my parents um, build businesses and work hard in business, I kind of had an understanding of what it took. And I also, you know, I was just exposed to that. So I I expected for myself to one day start a business because that's kind of what I saw growing up. And I think it gave me an advantage because I basically had built-in business coaches. Um, you know, when I was going through the process of starting Part Pick, I could always call my mom and ask her questions and get her thoughts on things, whether it was, you know, how do I go about making my first hire or, you know, how do I manage my books? All of these things that most people may have to pay people to help them on, I was able to just call my mom and that was super helpful along the way. That's a blessing to have that, um, you know, be able to dial your mom up at any time or go to her and talk to her about um, how to start your business, how to run your business. A lot of us don't have that um, as an option. So that, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, how did seeing the entrepreneur ecosystem in the Bay Area when you went to Google change or influence your expectations of what an entrepreneur or entrepreneurship was? Yeah, so that had a big impact because, you know, even though I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and grew up, you know, watching people build businesses, I had not been exposed to technology, um, you know, and software as a type of business or types of entrepreneurship. So being in the Bay Area, working at Google, um, even being exposed to different accelerator programs and um, just people that I was and working with one day and then I would you know read about them a few months later you know they had started new businesses or started startups um, that just gave me this notion that you can start a business and have relatively low overhead as far as you know not having to start a brick and mortar but you can just have an idea and either build a website or build a, an app build some type of technology and just go with that and so that exposure, I think, was key for me as far as putting the pieces together and kind of building the foundational um, know-how to eventually start Perfect. Jewel, we're so excited you're here. This is Aurelia. You left Google to move close to your family in Atlanta, and I've heard you say that you really kept in touch with folks from your Google time. Has kind of building strong relationships and keeping in touch with people, has that been part of what you've done throughout the course of your life? or? Did somebody tell you, hey, make sure you do this in your in your work life, your career? Um, 
I don't know if anyone told me specifically, but I do think it's been really critical to any level of success that I've achieved is just being able to maintain good relationships, keep in touch with people, let them know what's going on with me. Um, and that was really important as far as my Google relationships, because although I left um, in 2012 to move to Atlanta and kind of be closer to family, I, I did keep in touch with the people that I was working with. And that gave me an opportunity to go back to Google um, and become an entrepreneur in residence in 2014. And that was important because uh, that position allowed me to do something I really loved, which was give back to entrepreneurs, teach them how to use Google products, go and speak at different conferences. Um, and it also allowed me to continue to build PartPick and be able to pay my bills at the same time. So that was a really you know, crucial thing for me. And a lot of people don't even know that I was working at Google for a good part of the time that I was building PartPick. Um, and I was able to kind of manage both things. But for me, because I wasn't um, I did raise some money, but that w that didn't happen automatically. Um, I really, you know, am grateful for the the opportunity I had to work at Google, so that I could kind of reinvest back into what I was starting with Parpit. So I'm gonna go back to a lot of people did not know you were at Google. Do you remember when I walked in there and I saw you as a uh, Google Entrepreneur Residence? Because I remember when I was working on that project, remember that, that project I was working on for Google? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, I was talking to the business, my business partner at the time, Julie, and uh, I was like, this could not be the same Jewel Burks. I know it's not. <laughs> and then when I walked in, I was like, it is you. So yes. I was surprised, because it's not like you made this big announcement. I'm at, I'm at Google, I'm their resident, entrepreneur in residence. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people were like, oh, how did this happen? Right. Yeah. I know I was confusing people because sometimes they would see me and I would have my Google hat on and I would be, you know, doing a session or, you know, talking to them about Google apps. And then other times they would see me and I would have my part pick hat on and I would be pitching or, you know, doing something related to part pick. So I'm sure people were like, when does this girl sleep? Because I was, I was doing a lot during that period. But for me, um, it was both things that I really enjoyed and Google was very, understanding and flexible with me um, and, you know, gave me the kind of autonomy to manage my time in the way that was was best. So I never felt too stretched and um, I just felt really supported during that time. Um, so I'm always grateful to Google for giving me the opportunity to, to do a job that I really enjoy, but also have the freedom to build my company at the same time. That is really, that's really a blessing and really interesting too. And we'll come back to that in just a second, but I, I want people to understand a little bit about how you came up with the vision of the company and so forth. So you went to Atlanta to be closer to your family. You accepted a job at McMaster Car, which is a private supplier of hardware tools, raw materials and maintenance equipment and supplies. Yep. Tell us a little bit about this job experience and what factors inspired your idea for part pick um, and what the original goal and vision was of the company. Just give people a little bit of some foundational background. And sure. then we'll come back to Google and, and kind of what, how you were doing dual things at once. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I took a job at McMaster. They had a kind of like leadership development program. And as part of that, I was um, managing in the, 
a call center. So basically, I was managing people who were taking orders for these different products and raw materials like you described. And um, in that role, I was often the person who got escalations when we'd sent out the wrong products or when a customer had a, a problem. So for the better part of my days, I was kind of getting yelled at by customers. And in that process, you know, I tried to figure out what was the root cause of the problems that they were raising. And a lot of times what I would discover is that they were having difficulty locating the products because they didn't know the name of the part or they didn't know the part number. And they would be trying to describe it using words um, to the people on my team. And a lot of times it's really difficult to describe something like a, a part when you don't know what it's called. Um, and so it wouldn't be that my team members didn't know, you know, weren't doing a good job of, of trying to help them find it. It's just that it's, it's really hard to translate a, a verbal description of a physical object. So in these calls, I would hear them, you know, even suggest, like, maybe I can just take a picture of it and send it to you, and you can find it that way. And we didn't have any real system or tool to take in images and do anything meaningful with them. So that is what gave me the idea for part pick. I thought it should be easier for, for someone to just snap a picture of a part that they're looking to find and be able to find the same one or a similar one and order it quickly. Um, and that was, yeah, that's pretty much what part pick was all about. And I also had a personal story that uh, made me really want to do this idea, which was that my grandfather, he was searching for a part um, for his tractor and could not find it, called me to help him find it. I could not find it. And so that was really, when I say like the straw that broke the camel's back, that made me want to pursue this idea for part pick. Tell me a little bit about how much time it took. So here you are in this call center, you're hearing, you know, problems over and over again, and I would imagine multiple times a day. How long did it take for this kind of, you know, light bulb to go off over your head? Um, so I started there in April of 2012, and I came up with, I was kind of frustrated for the first, you know, six months of being there, but it wasn't until December that I came up with the idea for part pick. And so I remember the date because I sent my mom an email on the day I came up with the idea, and it was 12 12 12 So I still have that email, but um, that's when, you know, I articulated my vision for part pick in, in that email on that day. That is so cool. So it doesn't take a whole lot of time, really, to come up with a need and be able to articulate that and figure out that you might be able to build a company around it. Right. How did you determine that this was a real a real company? Like this could really be something and you were going to go and, and, you know, develop this and maybe get some, you know, venture funding. How did you figure out that this was a real thing? It was fundable. And I, I heard you talk a little bit about kind of doing research and figuring out market space and so forth. Tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, so that was really my first step was to try to uncover uh, from a monetary perspective how much was the company losing um, because of this problem. And I, through research and still having the benefit of having access to a lot of information at that time um, in the industry, 
I was able to discover that the company, this, the particular company I was working for was losing millions of dollars per year on sending out second orders because of misunderstandings on the initial phone calls or the, the initial orders. And I knew the market share that MasterCard had and was able to kind of multiply that across the industry and discover that it was actually a multi-billion dollar problem across the industry. Um, and so with that, I gained confidence and felt like, okay, I can, I can build a business around solving this problem and get people to pay me um, because if they can pay me to make it easier for their customers to find the right part on the first try, then they won't have to send out second orders and they will have a big um, savings that way. So that was kind of how I built the business case for Parpit. That is so important, I think, for entrepreneurs to really hear that. Um, you identified a market need. You understood the depth and the breadth of that market need. You got really clear about that, and that gave you some confidence to go forward. So now let's go back to your time at Google briefly. Um, so you were ready to kind of launch this, do it yourself. You thought PartPick would you know, generate revenue in a certain amount of time. It didn't quite do that. And then you had to think about, after leaving McMaster Car, I believe, going back to work. Tell yeah. us about that decision and just kind of how that felt and how you did that. Yeah, so, you know, in my mind when I came up with the idea for Part Pick, I didn't fully understand how long it would take to build out the technology. Mm-hmm. Initially, I thought that we would be able to build on top of existing um, applications or APIs that were out there. But when I started really digging in and testing, I realized that actually we would need to build something from scratch and the development time and the research. um, Once I got into it, I realized, oh, okay, this is going to take us a lot longer to get to a point where we have a product that can start generating revenue. Um, So that realization happened probably three or four months after I quit my job and was already kind of out there and spending money. And, you know, I, I had at that point saved up what I thought would be enough to last me maybe nine months to a year, but in reality, I probably should have saved up enough for two, maybe three years. Um, so with that in mind, I knew that I was going to have to figure out a way to, to pay my bills. Um, and luckily, like I said, I had still had good relationships with Google and was able to talk to them about um, having you know, a position where I would still have the ability to... Um, to, to run part pick and do work with them. So I was lucky that they were reasonable and, and willing to work with me on that. And that allowed me to um, be able to, to keep the lights on while still building my business. I think what just jumped out at me when I've heard, when I heard that part of your story in the past is just the tremendous humility and real, you know, just good, business judgment that it took for you to be able to say, wow, okay, I've got to go back and figure this out. And I'm still committed to my idea. I'm still going to make this work. And there are practicalities to this. And I don't have enough runway as far as paying my bills. So I'm going to make make it work in a different way. So right. hats off to you for doing that. Thank and you, you. And you picked a company that will be willing to allow you to be able to do this at the same time. So that, that was smart on your part as well. Yeah, and I, I will say that, you know, that I think is 
part one one of the parts many there are many parts of my story where I think there was kind of like divine intervention yeah. and I, I don't know that it's you know super it's it's not like I could have planned it that way um, but I do think it was a, a function of having great relationships and not being afraid to reach out to people and as you put it like having some humility about the situation and what I was trying to do um, so yeah I just want to note that a lot of people ask me like oh okay so how do I apply to be an entrepreneur in residence and I'm like well actually I didn't I didn't apply for a position necessarily it was like a conversation and in you know I had a special circumstance um, so I just want to put that out there that it's when people are listening to this, it's not always going to be, you know, an exact formula that you can follow, but it is, I think there's some key takeaways that you can potentially um, inject into kind of whatever you're trying to do. Hi, Jill, it's Christina. Um, So there are a few things that you said that I absolutely love. So one, the thing that you just said about divine intervention, I call them divine pauses as well. Um, So, you know, being able to to be intuitive and listen to that uh, calling, I think, is really important. And the other thing that you mentioned that I absolutely love is that you know and remember <laughs> the day and time that you articulated your vision to your mom, the 12, 12, 12. Um, so I think that's just important just to be able to put a stake in the ground and understand that. But I want to go back and kind of uh, dive a little deeper into your ability to work full-time while building the business. And so many of our listeners are in that process now, building their business while they're working. And I think some people find it hard to articulate what they're doing on the side and may, um, you know, just may not, be, may not have the opportunity to be as transparent as you were or communicate. And so what yeah. was the most important thing to your success or what advice would you give entrepreneurs that are kind of balancing at both ends and how can they use transparency and communication to help? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for me, I had the benefit of I had started Parpick already when I was talking to Google about coming back. And with that, it was very, I had to be very clear about what I was doing because I never wanted there to be confusion about, you know, who owned what, whose intellectual property was whose. Um, so I had to disclose everything. At that point, I'd already um, filed a patent. So it was it was important for me to even have conversations with lawyers about um, just making sure that we were all squared away as far as part pick being mine and it not being any confusion about who owned it. Um, so that was one thing, and I think it's important, particularly for people that are working at tech companies and um, are also looking to start something, that they be really clear, and particularly on the legal side, about ownership. Um, because that can get people in trouble if they're trying to do two things and, you know, potentially mixing as it relates to resources, working on their company laptop, that type of thing. You know, you have to be careful about that. Um, and I think the best way to handle that is to, is to be brave and have those tough conversations um, and also be aware of the situation. Like, for example, you have to know you have to know the culture of where you work. And like I tell people, a lot like I couldn't have started part pick working at uh, McMaster that wasn't the culture of that company it, it I had to, in my opinion I had to quit to start um, because it just it wouldn't have I don't think it would have worked out the same way so you kind of have to understand the culture of the company you're, where you are 
and then also be able to have conversations and disclose to people, you know, what you're working on. In some cases, it might not make sense to disclose, but in others, it's going to be important to make sure that down the line, there are never any issues related to um, ownership. Yeah, I love your discernment, and I love that quote. I had to quit the start. I think that's a, an important one. And so kind of on that, you know, many of our listeners also ask questions about the process of identifying a co-founder. And I know that mm-hmm. you identified a co-founder. What decisions led you to bring on a co-founder? Tell us a little bit about that conversation and thought process. Yeah, so um, initially the person who became my co-founder, I had, originally just reached out to to get some feedback on my idea. When I was reaching out to him, I didn't think I'm, I'm reaching out to him so he can become my co-founder. It was more so that he was working. Um, we previously worked together at Google, so already had a working relationship and um, we're friends. And at the time that I reached out to him, he was working at Shazam. So I thought that he would have some insight on what my idea was for part pick because essentially Shazam is a similar product, just in a different space. Um, so that was my initial reason for reaching out to him. And it was actually his response that made me feel like he might be a good fit for a co-founder role because he was engaged and he was asking me good questions and he seemed to care about kind of the problem set. Um, and so it wasn't, like I was initially seeking him as a co-founder, it was more so as we continued to talk and kind of trade notes, I thought he would be a good fit. Um, so I think it's important, you know, for people as they're trying to figure out who might be a good co-founder is to go into it, um, one, looking for people that you know you can work well with or have some type of history of working with in the past, um, and two, trying to gauge their just general level of interest and potential passion for whatever the problem that you're seeking to solve is. I love that, too. It sounds like it was another divine intervention and just, you know, really uh, still hits on what you've done most of your life is just maintain and cultivate relationships and really building something from that. So I also listened to a few other of your other podcasts and panel discussions, and then we had a conversation before we got on air And I wanted to just highlight what I heard around your dedication to your team. And I love how you look out for opportunities to highlight your team's strengths and ways that you've identified for them to grow. I think we'll talk a little bit later about negotiations uh, during um, some of your your non-negotiables with the uh, acquisition. But thanks for just being such a dope leader for people Mm -hmm. and really taking care of them. Um, So let's talk a little bit about developing your team and technology. How, how did you go about, outside of the co-founder, building the rest of your team, and how did you get them behind your vision? Yeah, so um, the biggest way that I built my team was going and sitting and, and attending programs, um, particularly at Georgia Tech, because I knew that I was going to need a really strong technical team. Um, so I, I guess one of the best decisions I made was being unafraid to just show up on campus, go to different events, um, and join the community there. And that's how I was able to meet the right people who eventually led me to the right team. Um, so yeah, that was, that was one way. And then when I got there, not being afraid to talk about what I was working on, I think a lot of people are really shy about 
sharing their ideas because of fear of someone stealing it or whatever. But um, I was told early on that, you know, if you want people to help you, you have to tell them what you're working on. And so that's something that I did pretty generously, and, and that worked out for me. So let me ask you this question. <laughs> As you reflect on your most challenging team, you know, building or team memory, what was what is something that hindered progress or something that you all had to work through from a team perspective? Um, I think managing my own expectations about the speed upon which we could um, build things was something that I had to work on. And I say that because I was able to attract a really talented, smart team, but we were working at different paces in certain times during the life of the company. And my team was extremely academic. So most of the people on my team, you know, PhDs from Georgia Tech and coming pretty recently out of research-driven environments. And I was coming out of a sales, you know, enterprise sales, go, go, go environment. So there were points at which we had to kind of level set and get on the same page because I was trying to go and sell the product and they were like, wait a minute, Jewel, we have not built the product. <laughs> we, have, we need more time. Um, and so that was something that was difficult along the course of the company. But finally, I think we got into a rhythm where I would try not to overpromise things and I would consult with them first before I would go into any customer meeting and, and really understand where we were and what we could offer um, and make sure that they felt good about the timelines that we were promising to customers. <laughs> that, you know, that you bring up a really good point. As someone who uh, has built uh, technology at the enterprise level for many corporations, I was both a developer and then kind of a business developer for our products, and so I've played both, both ends. And I remember <laughs> uh, one time um, really pushing our team to add functionality and I knew I was pushing them, but they, they definitely pushed back, and we were able to get the product out. So as you just highlighted, building technology, it takes planning, you know, testing, work, and feedback from everyone on the team. Um, how did you know when and how to iterate, and what, um, what did you learn through that process? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. I can't say that I always knew when and how to iterate. I think I was guided a lot by the feedback that we were getting from customers um, and the decisions were kind of based on, on that and the guidance was based on that. But um, it was also based on just trying to do some longer term planning and forecasting and road mapping based on where ultimately I wanted the product to be. So one thing I think I did a pretty good job of was um, getting buy-in from the full team on the ultimate vision and where we wanted to go and making sure that all roads were leading to that vision. Um, and so there were, you know, there were periods where we had to, you know, we had to decide, do we want to, do we want to do um, recognition for all products or do we want to get really specific about just one or two segments of, of parts or, you know, what, do, what is that we really want to be working, working towards? And um, I think the more we had clarity on that, the better we were able to move and, and make progress. 
I think that's so important. And, and I have one final question, I think, before I know Aurelia and, and Zena want to jump in. Um, but, we, you know, there's so many more women and, and women of color building technology platforms. Uh, and many of our listeners are, are building technology platforms. What advice would you give our founders listening who are in the process of developing a technology platform? What, what, what advice would you give them around developing an MVP or, you know, that first iteration? Yeah, I think the biggest advice I can give is to really be close, as close as you can to the product without being a micromanager. So for me, that meant um, not being afraid to dig in and, and break stuff. So I was tester number one. You know, I was always just intimately involved with understanding how things were working and, you know, asking questions, giving feedback, even though I wasn't building everything or really anything. I was the one that was, you know, trying to break it, trying to see how our customers would be using it. Um, and that helped because I was able to ask good questions to the team and, and make sure that there would be no question that a customer would ask that I hadn't already asked. Um, so that would be my recommendation, particularly for founders that are non-technical, um, to just be super close to the product and not be so hands-off that they don't understand how things work and, and what are the levers that need to be pulled um, in any direction to to make things work better for customers. That's awesome. Great. That's, yeah, thank That's you. Great. Yeah. <clears throat> so you raised over $2 million. First of all, congratulations. I think... Any founder would be very proud of that. Let's talk a little bit about the funding journey. Um, part of what you were doing is pitching at pitch competitions. Yes. And you won a lot of pitch competitions. Was pitching at a com competition part of your funding process? Was that kind of part of what you thought of as funding your business? What were the goals you had in going to pitch competitions and getting on a stage and doing that in front of a group of people? Yeah, so I use pitch competitions as a way to get in front of people that I didn't have a direct path to otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, you know, getting on those stages accomplished a few goals. It allowed me to get in front of potential investors. Um, it allowed me to overcome a part of my personality, which is pretty introverted um, and not you know, not one who feels always very comfortable just going to a networking event and working in the room. Um, I saw pitch competitions as a way to get on a stage and get the attention on me and have people come to me and mean and not have to go to them in a, in a sense. Um, and so, yeah, it allowed me to win. Uh, and also kind of I used it as a way to bridge the gap before I was ready to actually go out and raise uh, a round. So I was able to kind of get further with the product um, using pitch competitions as a way to win cash prizes. And, um, yeah, I, I feel good about the run I had. I was kind of like on a roll for a while with the pitch <laughs> competitions. Um, but it was really a tool that allowed me to get the product further, to get sort of a build a network of um, potential investors. And it also helped me with PR. Um, I got – quite a few stories coming out of, you know, TechCrunch Disrupt and South by Southwest and some of the other Rise of the Rest, some of the pitch competitions that we did um, 
were kind of lead ins to other opportunities that were, were great for the company. Tell us what you learned from pitch competitions that was good and maybe even some things that were really annoying or a pet peeve for you. Um, I think the biggest thing I learned was just how to tell my story in a way that resonated with people. Hmm. And I got really comfortable um, with that five minute pitch and, and so much so that, you know, I still pretty much remember it <laughs> to this day, <laughs> even though I haven't given it in like three years. Um, so that was good. It, it got me comfortable with, you know, talking to anyone about why I was building Parpic and what the vision for the product was. Um, one of the, I guess what I didn't so much like, I think it's really easy to get on, you know, the pitch circuit and not be able to get off. Um, mm-hmm. and I do think, you know, I see founders that are pitching still and I was pitching against them four or five years ago and I'm like, Hey, why don't you focus on just building your business? Because it, it's easy to just be distracted with the quick money, quick wins that can come with, um, doing those pitch competitions. So and it, I think and it could be that's a very good yeah, point because yeah. we know people like that. And I think that you're giving some very good advice because there are folks out there who are pitching constantly and you start thinking, are you, are, you know, do, when do you have time to build your business? Right. Yeah. And it's I mean, like I said, like I, I can't I don't know who said that, but it can be addictive, the kind of adrenaline really? rush. And then mm-hmm. if you get to a point where you're winning them it can be an ego thing where you're just like, oh, I'm winning. I should keep doing this. But in reality, you know, it's not necessarily contributing to moving your business down the line. So I think it's important to, you know, do that for a period if if that's what you need to do, but stay focused on, on growing the bottom line of your company. Very wise of you. So you got really good at telling the story around the company in a way that resonated with people. Tell us about cultivating and winning your first customers and contracts. Did you use the same story or was it different? Um, It was somewhat the same, a little bit different because I was able to speak from the perspective of someone who was working in the same types of companies that I was pitching. Um, so for example, you know, I was, I would tell more about what it felt like to be managing the call center and, and get that angry call and, um, not feel equipped to properly help the customer. And I would talk about the value add that Perfect had as a kind of customer service tool. Um, and so that was more of the pitch for the, the, the customers that we were talking to. Um, and it was also a pitch around us helping them get into kind of the 21st century as related to their technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause a lot of these customers that we were working with, they were still using, you know, catalogs as their primary uh, way for people to find the right products. And so we were, we were saying that we can help them get into a place where they can rely more heavily on e-commerce and um, deliver this application to their customers that can assist them in finding the right parts. And so it was more of a conversation of helping move these these companies forward and um, our tool being the way that they move forward with their technology. Yeah, that makes sense. And you could tell the story of your grandfather in that, in that yep. um, conversation. So then telling the story to investors, um, tell us about what was different with pitching to a group versus pitching to investors. I mean, 
you pitched to over 200 investors before getting 20 of them to say yes, which are mm-hmm. not maybe, I don't want to say before, but in total you pitched to over 200 investors and in total you had 20 investors right. that made up your $2 million raise. Again, great accomplishment. How was the how was the pitch that you would do, let's say on a stage, different from how you would focus that discussion with more of a one-on-one kind of conversation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the pitch on stage is more of an emotional appeal. I always started the pitch talking about the my grandfather, and that was everyone has well, not everyone, but a lot of people have grandfathers that they really love, and so. I would capture people with that, um, but investors, not to say they don't have grandfathers that they love, but <laughs> I don't think they care as much about my grandfather and that particular story, so they're more so interested in the, you know, what, how do we make money, um, how does the business grow, what, what are we thinking as far as the market dynamics that would um, either help or hurt the business, so those are the things that I would focus more on in the investor pitches. Um, and, and also it was more education because a lot of the investors that I was pitching didn't have a understanding or appreciation for how big the parts market is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those kind of sleepy industries that you don't realize it's a hundred plus billion dollar industry. Um, but once you dig into it, you, you notice that like everything around us is kept together by these these parts and there's tons of these supplies that are just all over the place. Um, and so that was more of the conversation with investors was just helping them understand how big of an opportunity we had um, because a lot of them just assumed that we were speaking to a very niche market. And although it is somewhat of a niche market, it's a huge, it's a huge market. Um, so yeah, that was a big part of the investor conversations was trying to help them see how big of a space we were playing in. Was there feedback from investors that helped you really refine that story as you went through kind of pitching directly to investors? And maybe was there even feedback that you got from investors that was not so helpful in how to tell the story? Um, You know, it's kind of hard when you're going and doing a lot of pitching because you will get, you know, if you have 10 investor meetings, you might get 10 different pieces of feedback, and they a lot of times will be conflicting. Um, so I try to listen attentively to what people are saying and capture themes and note things that I was hearing over and over again. Um, but for the most part, I felt like I had a pretty clear vision, and in most cases I had a, a lot more knowledge about the particular industry that I was playing in than most of the investors I was speaking to. So I tried not to be too reactive to the things that I was hearing because I think that can get entrepreneurs in trouble when they're changing their pitch after every meeting just because of one thing someone said after 10 minutes of hearing you talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to like listen and, and be mindful of the things that they're saying and kind of pull out the themes, but not be too quick to change your whole company <laughs> because of something that someone said, um, you know, in a, in a short meeting. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So you were acquired or you were approached for acquisition while you were in the process of raising a Series A. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about how you made the decision to take that, take up that offer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You weren't expecting it. It was kind of came out of the blue. 
what did you think about when somebody came to you and said, hey, we're, we think this is awesome, we're ready to purchase you? What were you worried about that maybe wouldn't happen if you exited? Or maybe what would you worried would happen if you didn't exit? Like, tell us, tell us a little bit about that thought process. I'll bet a lot of founders are so excited about thinking about the exit that they may not think through all of the considerations until they actually get there. So Yeah. Um, I will say it was definitely the hardest decision that I've had to make in my life so far. Um, and the reason is because I hadn't really gotten to where I wanted to go yet with PartPix. It was still pretty early in the life of the company, and I still wanted to keep going. Part of me wanted to keep going. Um, but how I came to the decision that I came to sell was that I was aware of what was going on with a lot of other companies in the market, uh, a lot of the other computer vision companies that were, you know, computer vision for X were getting bought up by the larger players in the industry. And I was kind of watching that happen. Um, I was also noticing that in the customer conversations, our customers were really excited about part pick, but had maybe two or three big initiatives that they needed to take care of before they could really bring us on. So it was a, an, a notion of, can I wait for, you know, the two or three years it is going to take these customers to be ready? Um, or will I be able to raise money to float me during that time? Uh, so it was kind of a timing question. And it was also the question of, do I want to give up majority control of my company which is what I would have to do if I continue to raise money, um, or do I want to sell the company now, where I still have the ability to make the decision? I still, um, you know, will benefit from the financially benefit from the sell in a way that is meaningful to me and will be meaningful to my team. Um, you know, those are kind of the decision factors that went into me making the the choice to go ahead and sell. That makes a lot of sense. And I just hear throughout the whole conversation that you were so clear about just the market. You really knew the market. You really knew the need. You really understood what was going on around you. And I think that's so important for founders to keep in mind. Yep, absolutely. So I know many of our listeners desire to be attractive and acquired by a large company. And it's exciting when others, especially the big players, validate what you've been doing for so long. So I guess the question is, what do you think, and, and, and Amazon acquired you, what do you think Amazon found most attractive about PartPick? Um, I think our ability to um, recognize a very specific segment of products uh, made us attractive and do it to, um, you know, high precision and accuracy. So that was kind of the thing that was different about us. A lot of companies can recognize stuff, um, but they can only get it to a point where they can say, like, this is a cat or this is a dog. Um, and not to the point of us where we could say this is a two-and-a-half-inch um, roster or bolt or whatever, um, and with this threads per inch. And, you know, we could give a, a good amount of detail in our recognition. So I think that was kind of the thing that made us 
stand out um, to Amazon. And so you also mentioned that one of your considerations in acquisition was your ownership, you know, still being majority owner. How much negotiation power do you feel you had around that time? And what, what was most important uh, for you during the negotiation? Um, so for me, I was really interested in kind of maintaining the quality of life that I had established in Atlanta. So one of the big things was I didn't want to move. Um, I wanted to stay rooted in Atlanta. I've become really involved in the startup community um, here, and I, I didn't want to leave that. So one of the kind of non-negotiables I had was we would stay in Atlanta. Um, another one was wanting to maintain the team. Um, so I didn't want us to get spread out or broken apart um, or for them to kind of cherry pick people. I wanted us to go into Amazon as a team. Um, so that was another one of the things that I, I used um, kind of as a non-negotiable in the negotiations. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were, obviously we wanted to optimize for uh, making sure that we had a price that we felt good about and we were able to get back uh, money to our investors and all that. So those are some of the things that, you know, were important to me as I negotiated the deal. So these terms were things that you were thinking about, things that you wanted to make sure were part of an exit, which is great. I think it's, you know, really important for founders to start thinking about that in advance. Like when, when you do exit or when there are milestones that are met, what's important to you? What are the things you want to have happen? And not everyone might be thinking about the process from the same perspective, right? You, right. at this point, still had majority control of the company, so you got to make the decision. But how did you get everyone on board, or how did you have the conversation, perhaps with maybe your co-founder, or maybe people that were currently investing, maybe people that were on the board that didn't see the same things that you were seeing at the time? Tell us just a little bit about those conversations to the extent you can and feel comfortable doing so. Yeah, I think it's a lot of what I was mentioning before about painting a realistic picture of the world as it really is versus the world that we want it to, as it, we want it to be. Um, because I think it's easy to get caught up in, well, if this goes right and this happens and this customer signs on and this and this and this, then we can get to this point and get to this point. But at a, at a certain moment, I had to just recognize what was really happening, what were the dynamics that were really at play, and be able to explain that in a way that made sense to my investors. And I think they got it. I mean, when I told them, hey, you know, this customer, they want to sign on with us, but they their e-commerce site isn't ready, and they need to get that up before they can, you know, sign this $100,000 contract with us, and that's going to take them a year and we don't have enough money to last us a year. And I could kind of break it down that way and, and explain to them, like, this is the offer we have today. We're going to need X amount of dollars to get to a point where we're, you know, this valuable from the eyes of investor, investors in, in a year. So breaking it down and kind of showing them the numbers and also just explaining the fact that ultimately our product could get – into the hands of more people and we would have more resources through Amazon. I think most of them felt like it was a, it was a win um, for sure. And obviously happy to 
be able to get their money back in a, a small return. So, um, yeah, I don't. I didn't have to do a ton of convincing. I felt like for the most part, people were relatively happy with um, the outcome, and and also happy with the fact that, you know, now they could just count this as a, a W and hopefully reinvest in whatever startup I come up with next. <laughs> awesome. So I've, I've got a, this is Christine, I've got a, a question for you. Just reflecting back to both your parents being entrepreneurs, what is the one question that they asked while you're making this decision that stood out to you? Um, they were more so concerned about my like health because <laughs> I think I another factor in this decision was do I have the um, energy to keep keep it going for many more years and you know how am I how am I doing and I think I was kind of almost at a burnout position where you know I was working so so much and was really neglecting life outside of perfect um, so I think my parents really just wanted me, to, you know, wanted me to be happy. And that was kind of the leading question that they had was, do you think this decision will make you happy? Um, so, yeah, that was pretty much their concern. And, you know, I know the story how you met your husband. You were, <laughs> you were in the middle of all of this. Am I correct about this? When you um, started dating and... Um you had to explain to, you know, at the time, you know, before he became your fiance and then your husband, you know, what you do for a living. So how, how were you able to juggle and manage everything that you were doing? Well, actually, I went on my first date with my husband the weekend after I sold the company. Oh. So, okay. <laughs> so it was perfect timing. Right. Once I again, had, once again, yeah. divine intervention. <laughs> Divine timing. Divine mm -hmm. timing. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think, like, we laugh about this because we think about, we have, like, mutual friends, and there's probably situations where we were at the same event, um, but we never <clears throat> really met each other until after I sold the business, and I feel like I'm really grateful because I don't think I would have been in, I don't think I would have been, like, a great person to date. Actually, I know I wasn't a good person to date, so... Um, it worked out perfectly that we did not meet each other until after I was done with the, the negotiation and the deal process to sell. That's great. And um, I know that we've read a lot and I've heard a lot about your, you know, your spiritual path. And, um, you know, we had strong themes around family, faith and being in service to other, others. And do you feel that your entrepreneurial path and spiritual path align? Because I know personally it's a daily struggle for me. I mean, daily struggle for me to keep that, to keep them aligned. Do you feel the same way? And if so, how do you manage it? Yeah, so I do think that the paths have been so interesting. I think I've become far more spiritual. I think I've always been a spiritual person my whole life, but um, entrepreneurship really pushed me to kind of give it, I'm going to say, give it up. I don't want to get too churchy on here for your <laughs> listeners, but um, I really had to surrender a lot of the stress and pressure and anxiety and all the things that I was going through with building my business, I had to surrender it to God to help mm -hmm. me get through these things. 
Um, and so I believe that, you know, staying prayerful, trusting God through the process helped me a lot. Um, you know, at every step, at every level, I think, yeah, I don't believe that I could have done any of what I've been able to do without having that um, faith and belief in a higher power to help me get through it. Um, and I do think I can just think about certain things that happen and recognize, like I mentioned earlier, the divinity in those those things and the, the places that I was and the timing and all of these pieces. I feel like um, it was just steps ordered, um, and I'm really grateful to be in a position where I've, I have some sort of alignment with, with God, um, yeah, through all of this. And I don't think it's churchy at all, because um, mm-hmm. I think, I, I don't believe in uh, everything is by consequence. You know, things things happen for a reason. Everything is is not coincidental. It's it's because, like you said, it's divine order and it's, it's, it's ordered by your staff. So, no, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's important that our listeners um, do hear it from, especially somebody like you, who... Um, who had this amazing journey all before, you know, you turned 30 years old. Um, so I think it's important that they hear about the lessons that you've learned along the way and at the same time how God has been with you. So I want to yeah. know, um, what, what's life like after acquisition? Um, it's good. I... So as you noted, I got married recently, so that's been really fun to have a husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been good so far. It's been six months. Um, I've been able to spend a lot of time with people I care about and also with new people I, I didn't know before through kind of mentoring, advising, and doing some investing as well. Um, so that's been really cool. Um, it's also led me to start exploring and challenging some of the assumptions that I had when I was building my business. So what I've been working on more recently is a new venture uh, called Collab with two friends of mine and fellow entrepreneurs. And we're trying to kind of create new models for fundraising, particularly for black entrepreneurs. Um, because we believe that there are certain paths that we are told to follow that actually aren't the right paths for most businesses. Um, So we're trying to figure out what are ways that we can help capitalize companies but not push them down the path of trying to be unicorns when really they may only be, you know, 10 to $50 million business. So that's been taking up a lot of my time and attention is, is, figuring out what's a, a good way to be helpful and um, create new models that make sense for um, different entrepreneurs. We're going to have to bring you back on the show so we can learn more and hear more about what you're building. <laughs> that sounds very sure. exciting. So I was going to ask you what's next for you, but that sounds like collab is uh, next for you. And is there anything else you would like to share with the audience? Um, yeah, that's pretty much the big thing for me now. I'm also, um, obviously, yeah, spending a lot of time with entrepreneurs, trying to be as helpful as I can and get out a lot of my ideas and learnings um, from my experience building a business. And then uh, just keeping my eyes open to what's out there in the world and hoping that I can keep 
figuring out how to solve big problems. Um, my hope is to be, you know, a lifelong entrepreneur. So I'm always just trying to make sure that I'm, I'm being attentive and aware of, of what's happening in the world and see what problems I can potentially go out there and solve. That's great. This has been a great show, um, Jewel. Thank you so much for coming on board. And I know everyone, when they listen to this show, they're going to be dying to get to you. So tell us, <laughs> how can we find you? Yes. So uh, my website is jewelburks.com. My, I'm most active probably on Twitter. And my Twitter is at Jewel Melanie, which is my first and middle name. And I'm also on Instagram at Jewel Melanie. And you can follow Collab at Collab Capital on Instagram. And our website is collab.capital. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. Let's do a quick summary of all of the wonderful, wonderful things that we learned from Jewel. She had built-in business coaches, which is so cool. And I think it's really important that as entrepreneurs, we know we always need coaches in our life. We always need people who we can turn to that are going to be able to advise us on the big and the small decisions. Jewel really reminded us to, that those strong relationships, keeping those good connections with people that we meet on our career path, even if we don't know exactly how it's going to fit for them and us right now, it's just so important because it really built so many bridges for her going forward. And build, having that exposure to building tech companies, understanding how it works before jumping in was really opening her eyes on what's possible. She was very, very clear about the market need. She got very, very specific with what the company could do, what was possible there, and brought her team in to have a really clear vision about what that looked like. She was able to find a flexible work environment as she was building her, building her company and thought through how to protect her intellectual property, the ownership in the technology as she was building her company, even though she was employed at the time by another company. So really finding that um, balance between what's possible with runway and dollars and timing. We talked about divine intervention multiple times. So important to think through what your intuition is telling you, what greater guidance might be there for you as you're building your company. And if you're gonna take on a co-founder, really making sure it's a really good fit. We talked about managing expectations with regard to the speed at which something might get developed or completed, how to sell and how to balance the selling with the development of the technology, and also just being close to the product and not being afraid to, quote, break stuff, unquote. I love that. Um, one of the really cool things that Joel talked about is really using those pitch competitions and keeping in mind very clear goals about why she was there but keeping the opportunity in perspective and really staying focused on the running of the business itself. And finally, really knowing about your own market, getting feedback, but knowing it better than others, capturing themes when you get feedback from folks so that you're not getting swayed off of what you know is best, and really listening to yourself. She said that her exit decision was the hardest decision she's ever made in her life. So thinking through those things. And we talked about just having a theme of humility, having a realistic vision, and just having that entrepreneurship deepen your spiritual path, if that, if that is resonant for you. So thank you again, Jewel, for being with us on this show. And we look forward to hopefully having you back. And don't miss an episode of Get Found, Get Funded. Thank you.